Welcome everybody to the Value Clarity Podcast where we talk about delivering value and how simple that is and how complex that is throughout your company. Today, I am thrilled. I have one of my favorite people ever, Nate Kievman, uh, who's the CEO of Linked Strategies. Nate, welcome. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me today. So you are uh, one of the oldsters in the Linked Strategies. I know LinkedIn is uh, 18 years old, but uh, you have been in business for, what, 13? Uh, no, 11 since 2010. So um, so you're, you're one of the more senior LinkedIn uh, business consultants, but you have a very mature business model. You're not one of those people that uh, five of which call me, you know, LinkedIn request with me every week and then immediately tell you we've got a really great automated way of helping you spam your prospects. <laughs> no, there's uh, you know, like we started off as a LinkedIn marketing company many years ago, Mark. And, um, you know, LinkedIn is a great platform. It's got a lot of professionals in it. And depending on the market you're going after is a great source for engaging that marketplace. But about, you know, from 2010 to about 2015 was an interesting window of time. Actually, it was 2013. Uh, where we made our, our big pivot in our business, which was um, LinkedIn was in a fast growth curve, obviously. They went from, at the time, 25 million people to uh, almost a billion people over that window of time, from what I recall. And we were the forefront leaders in marketing on LinkedIn. We did everything from training to done-for-you services and helping companies manage it. What we didn't realize we were doing is indirectly and, and a little bit naively as just a marketer out there kind of hacking the, and going to hack the system and go, you know, make, make that entrepreneurial spirit work. Um, we weren't being respectful of the rules and regulations that LinkedIn was putting on its community to protect its community from, you know, just that spamming. Right. And so over the time, over that a couple of years, um, we had changed our business model every six months, completely changed because LinkedIn changed its rules so significantly every six months. And uh, about the sixth time through this, I just sat there one day, and I'm like, what are we doing as a business? This is insane. Like we can't build our core business on a external platform when our core mission isn't even anything to do with LinkedIn. It's about accelerating the growth of conscious and transformational companies. And we were using LinkedIn as a platform to help them make better connections, better relationships, better communities of their core market. And so we made a real strategic decision at that point in time. And we pivoted our business um, to being primarily off of LinkedIn with LinkedIn being a component of it. So we didn't change our name because we're still about linking the linking strategies, right, of professionals and executives around the world and connecting and building those great relationships. But all in all, what we realized in this experience was that LinkedIn was a tool that would work for some markets so like if your market for example mark is going after consultants or coaches or job seekers uh or professionals in the professional services space um or marketers or salespeople, linkedin is probably one of the best places in the world to be now if you're going after senior executives the belief is that you can go there but the lie is that you should go there 
right? It's actually not the best source. It's not where they spend their time. They don't even know their LinkedIn logins 90% of the time at, at the more senior organizational levels. So we learned a lot about the psychology of our buyers through a 900 person survey we did. And what we did, we ultimately moved off of LinkedIn, became an email based primary platform with some supplemental strategies. And, um, but it doesn't really matter what we were doing because our promise wasn't even that. Our promise was, we're going to help you build the relationships that will build your business and do turn those marketing cycles from months to minutes. And we were able to do that and completely pivot off of LinkedIn, still using LinkedIn profiles as a cornerstone of credibility and authority, but not using LinkedIn as the primary path for communication. And it was a big transformation for us. You just blasted that off, accelerating the growth of conscious and what companies? So uh, we're in the business of accelerating growth of conscious and transformational companies and individuals. We've added that recently because we do work with some uh, very uh, high profile individual people as well that have big missions and purposes. And we want to support that. The fact that you thought of what the customer outcome is, not what you sell, which is, you know, lead gen or, or business or appointments, uh, you sell business growth, you sell uh, accelerating the growth of conscious and transformational companies. So you took a step back by stepping forward into your customer's mind, wondering what they want. And yeah. that's the first key to a value focused culture is understanding the customer outcome. And so now you've built this company. You, you I mean, you've, you're what, 39 people now? Yep, we're up to 39 people today. And, you know, I think, though, the interesting thing is, is that um, we weren't always there. Like we've been thought of as lead generators originally. Then we became thought of as appointment setters, meeting setters for a few years. And then there's a pivot point over the last two, three years where it was focused more on business growth strategies. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so that evolution came because of the learning and listening to our clients, right? So as we went through, what we found is that um, companies don't want data. I mean, they want it, but they, they want that for a means to an end. They don't want leads. They, they want them, but they want them for a means to an end. They don't even want meetings, right? They, they want those for a means to the end. The belief is, is that if they get those things, they can do the rest. And the lie is that they can do the rest because they don't know how they hadn't trained themselves how and they usually don't willing to sit through that process so we keep going down that curve further and further taking the things that the companies aren't good at allowing them to focus on and refine the skills that they need to be great at which is uh, talking about their solutions and, and and understanding the problems they solve and the value they bring to the market so you and i have I mean, every time we talk we find uh, that we are kindred spirits in really sure. trying to understand what business are you in i worked one of my first jobs out of college, it was like, so I was a product manager for this company that made lettering and labeling machines. And this was so long ago that that's what desktop publishing was. You would uh, print your a report out on a dot matrix printer, yeah. but leave, leave the headlines blank. And then you would type on a labeling machine and you would print this uh, label on scotch tape and tape it into the labels, into the headlines on your report. And when you photocopy it, the outline of the scotch tape disappeared. So you'd have larger bold type for your headlines and for your title page. And that's what desktop publishing was. We own desktop publishing and we had prominent positioning in every office supply store in the world. 
and two guys came to us and said, hey, you guys own desktop publishing. We think we're gonna change it and we would like you to private label our computers. And we told Steve Jobs and Bill Wozniak to go pound sand. <laughs> because we're in the labeling machine business. And then just a few short years later, uh, a company out of you know Silicon Valley came to us and said, you know, these laser printers are really a thing, but we have a computer language that describes everything on a page. And so you'll be able to do unlimited things visually and graphically on a laser printer. So we're gonna change the laser printer from a text-based printer to uh, being able to print anything. And we have this language and we would love you and your great positioning in office equipment stores. And we told Adobe Systems, take PDF and pound sand. Wow. And that, now that, that board should be fired. <laughs> oh wait, right? they're not in business anymore. That's amazing, isn't it? So they really didn't oh, understand their customer or where the market was moving. They don't, yeah, they didn't define their, they define their business by what they make, not the outcome their customers achieve. Mm -hmm. And now you are helping your clients do that same thing. Yeah, and it's really hard for companies. It's weird. We have this, this process that we, um, that we undergo with our clients that helps them. So, so let me reframe this. We have an understanding of a psychology of executives. Okay. Most people speak director and VP. They don't speak executive. So in order to have that, we need, we need, we build a translation device. If you would, a Rosetta stone is, you know, the, this tool that we build for our clients that helps them understand better the value they truly bring to the market as it pertains to the executive suite because they don't really understand. It's so like I just had a client that was selling his services for $40,000 a year. He thought it was a great value prop and he was telling me all these stories. And I mean, he was having hundreds of millions, 500 million billion dollar impacts on these companies for this $40,000 solution. And you and I would say like, that's just insane, that's crazy. He doesn't know how to articulate or didn't, now he does his real value to the market, which was this big outcome of this growth and this, right? He was being, he was charging for this small solution that was having this exponential impact, changing some of the world's most commonly recognized brands in significant ways, significant ways, like not small ways, like significant ways by understanding the core value of those companies and bringing a better message to the market. So, but he wasn't doing it for himself. So I've, after helping articulate this with him and putting it into this tool, it was like, oh my gosh, now his average service fee is one to two and a half million dollars and he gets equity for the upside. It's unbelievable. And I will bet he actually has a higher close rate at the higher price. Absolutely will. He's just starting with it. So he's I, selling his first yeah, one today. There's actually that low price point communicates a value that you're lower than what you really are. And you're fighting against your own price because your price was too low. Yeah. It's so true. And uh, it, it's believability is just as big a part of value as anything else. And yeah. and um, and if you you can't go promise a $10 million value and charge 10,000 bucks for it, right? It doesn't it doesn't make sense to a, a normal business person. Now, to a director or a VP who is working within a small budget, and they might do that because that's they're getting the game game on for them, right? They get the kudos for it. But to a C-suite executive, they would never understand it. So what, what I'm getting at is that what I really have learned over the past 10 years in our business 
is that executives think different than VPs who think different than directors who do think different than managers. And the way we speak to them and the way we articulate our value proposition is completely unique in each case. Yeah. Um, there was another client we had who was also at $40,000 a pallet of this stuff that they, they were selling in the biotech space. And after uh, a whole review of the value impact and the hundreds of millions to billions of dollars they were saving their clients with this technology and this biotechnology they had, they're like, well, this is all they can ever spend. I was like, well, who are you selling to? Well, they're only ever selling to directors, right? So the only thing they could ever get was budget from the directors and these little snippets. And so when we reframed it, we put them at a 1.5 million with huge royalty upsides because of the, the value prop. We got seven offers within the next three months, went public, did a reverse SPAC. Now they're on the public market with huge amounts of money coming in. It's unbelievable. And that all happened during the pandemic. Like just just thinking about how you articulate value. Now, I say all of this about the value perception, but I think I do want to I want to pivot over, uh, Mark, to um, culture and how our ah, yes team embodies that. Because um, I'm one person, right? And I can say what I'm saying to you because I understand and I've been in the market for 10, 11 years now and um, have worked with hundreds of companies in various industries and have that perspective. But my, my team hasn't, right? And so one of the things that we do, and um, the first thing I, I was able to do is, you know, I, I was worked very hard to find a really highly effective COO who was culturally aligned with my wife's and my mission in the business, right? Which was this conscious and transformational accelerated growth concept. And she embodied it every bit of it. She came from VC space, Goldman Sachs, IBM, had a huge background, wanted nothing to do with it. She wanted something to do with something new, something cool, something cutting edge. And so we found that advocate to help us because my skill set wasn't necessarily in hiring people because I love everybody. I'm, you know, I'm in the sales side of the mm-hmm. house, right? So everybody is amazing. Everybody has this great potential. But yeah. one of the you know, I, I say uh, I do the same thing. I take it, you know, people told me I, you take in a lot of lost straight puppies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I needed somebody that could be, uh, could offset that for me and see what I don't look at. Cause I don't really see that in people. And, um, then we put some criteria in place and so the, the three C's of hiring for us, which was, um, character, competency and capability. Right. And they have to have all three to be sustainable. We can have them with low competency. If we can feel we can train them up, which we do often, if they have the right character and capability, right? Um, and so we look for that as we hire. And then as we hire, so we weren't always this way. I, I think our culture has been this way for two years, really, really find, refined. Um, it took a while for us to kind of let go of some people that were well entrenched into the business, but were truly not character aligned, right? They were capable and competent, but they weren't character aligned. So it was, it was a lot of more friction in the business earlier on. And as we, we've had massive leaps, I mean, in COVID, we lost 80% of our business on, in March, right? And to 20 in 2020, um, by the end of the year, we, we were 10% up on the year before. And that was because our team aligned, we were character aligned already. And then we culturally aligned and we were able to repivot and adjust and accelerate through all of that. And it was an, a miraculous experience for everybody. You know, and so um, I, I can talk a lot about this. So maybe you want to guide some questions. Well, well yeah, you know, um, I 
I talk about a value-focused culture. How do you make sure that everybody knows how their role connects? Well, I think it's uh, two primary things, communication and technology, right? So we're a completely virtual company, have been for 10 years. So pandemic didn't really disrupt us in that way like some companies. Um, tools like Slack have been extraordinary for us to have a integrated workforce and still have office space virtually. Um, we have uh, a good portion of our teams in South Africa, UK, Canada, and the US. And so we're pretty well spread out around the, around the world and time zones. And so how would a company like that have such a uh, high focus on culture and character. Well, um, we, we just had a, a lady who's uh, stepped out of the business because she's pregnant and uh, taking a maternity leave. And so we had a company party for her virtually last night, right? And had some one of the people in the area drove over with balloons and a, and a nice little book of quotes and things like that. And we just took a moment out of all of our busy days and had an hour together just talking about how grateful we were for her. And that sort of activity that sort of it starts with love right it starts with us really loving people loving people's essence it doesn't mean it doesn't mean we have to keep people on just because we you know because we love them in the business setting you can still love them and not be business partners um, but we love them for who they are as people first and foremost um, we see them we ask everybody to contribute value into the business. So what do they see? So when I say communication, there's a lot of listening at every level so that the the ground people in our organization that are, are beat in the street and setting meetings and managing data and those sorts of activities in our business, they have as much a say as I have, right? In, in insight on what a customer is experiencing. And, um, and they, anybody can raise that flag in the organization and it's seen as the same level of importance across the board. And maybe some variance on that, but for the most part, that's how it's seen. And what we, we do is that level of love and respect is portrayed in the character that we hire for, right? Yeah. It's, it's how we view people. One of my favorite sayings is, and my, one of my philosophies in life is I see people's perfection where other people see imperfection. I see their greatness where other people see flaws. I want to see their truth more than they see it in themselves so they can feel that love. Yeah. Like that's super, super important for us as a culture. And so accordingly, like when we run a campaign, we do spiritual stuff. Like we're going to bless a campaign before it goes out the door, right? We're going to expect the best. We're going to play the quantum physics realm into the real realm. And we're going to expect and see what we want. And accordingly, our team knows to manage our clients the same way. Because if we have a client that shows up in fear and worry and doubt and anger, we're not launching their campaign until they get that crap out of here. <laughs> Honest to God, like get get it get gone. Like, or let's not start because it's not going to win, right? You can't have that mindset and that yeah. being and still win. Yeah. So you were saying you've got some people who are setting appointments. Yeah. And one of my... Um, one of my things that I really harp on is quantity versus quality. And certainly as a, as a leader, you have to measure the number of appointments. But so many companies want to measure the number of appointments, not the quality of the appointments with the right people. Not we're setting an appointment where we know so much about that executive that we know the outcomes they're, they're, you know, that they're looking for. Not just... I got them to agree to a 15 minute time slot. 
Um, yeah, they're they're all and they're all important, right, Mark? Quantity and quality—they both have their place in market. How do you measure quality? So, I'm a believer that quality is going to originate from data first, right? So we we and we guarantee that. So, um, meaning that somebody has to know who they want to meet with, right? And, and in our business, we're 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 kind of all the links in the chain from data to them being on the phone with you and then maturing the sales process. Not everybody does all of those stages. The reason we do all those stages is because we know the quality of data is as important as, you know, it's the starting point. If you don't have that good, then you're never going to get anything else good. So it's got to be top tier. Um, So we spend a tremendous amount of time on that part of the business and part of the identification of the digital universe that represents our clients. Um, that said, then the copy and the way we write and the tone we write in and the um, clarity of the message and the detail of that message is so articulate and so full, right, that we'll have the likes of Elon Musk or Tim Cook respond to two of our clients, right, from a cold email that's 13 or 15 paragraphs long. like. It's counterintuitive, but it's really a powerful psychology that we use in engaging the market. And so when our clients say we want to talk with these people and those people have read this, all we can say is if they've done those two things and they fit all your criteria and they've said, yeah, I'd like to learn more about your business, that's about as close to what you'd call a BANT qualified meeting that you could get, right? And um, now it's up to you. Now. What we've seen, and I can't believe what I've seen in the market, Mark, honestly, it's mind-blowing. I don't know what companies are thinking, honestly. I don't know why they focus on tactical selling so intensely. But most people are taught, show up on a call, do a demo, ask for business, say yes or no. Right? It's like, it's the most idiotic approach to sales that I've ever heard. And it's what everybody does. And so we spend so much of our time breaking this now. It's like my business has to get into breaking this habit or because why? If they don't close our, we, we've in 11 years, I've had three partial refunds. We guarantee our meetings, right? So typically 100 to 300 meetings a year is average for us. Three years or three clients over 11 years, we've gotten a partial refund back to it for not delivering on our minimum guarantee, right? But our referral, our, our renewal rate for a while before we moved into the growth focus was only at 30%. Even though we delivered 100% of what we said almost all the time, renewals were way lower because people weren't converting. So until we moved into supporting them to convert business, now that we do that, we're having companies exponentially blow up. It's fantastic. We had one company went from 600,000 to 5 million in one year, like through the pandemic. It's like, fantastic support there right but it's not always the case and some companies take as you know a long time to break those habits i um this is my personal theory about why that happened you know (laughs) there's um the here's the measurement 12 years ago cso insights big research house said that the average b2b buying committee the number of people weighing in on a buying b2b buying decision was 6.3 or five point, you know, five or six, yeah. and now today it's up to twelve, and in some cases twenty. <laughs> and it's not because whatever's being sold is that more complex; 
It's that companies have divided and subdivided and sub-subdivided and sub-sub-sub-specialized and turned the silos into smaller silos into smaller into soda straws. And so now something that used to be the expertise of one person is the expertise of three people in combination because they are sub-experts, which means we do the same thing with sales. I have clients who have 15 roles that touch the customer. Wow. Imagine, and, and now I, I go through an exercise with them. Name all the people, all the roles that touch your customer, and now stack rank them from the highest credibility and trust with the customer to the lowest. Now get a highlighter out and highlight the ones that are in sales roles. Where's all the color in that stack rank? Your salespeople are in the bottom third of the trust rank. Now ask yourselves, which ones do you say, I want to, they, these are the people that I allow to have business conversations with my customer. Mm-hmm, right. I don't, I t the people with the most trust, I tell them, shut up, don't have those business conversations, stay in your lane and get back to the office as quick as you can. Interesting. And so imagine you're, you know, imagine you're a business leader. Imagine you're a military leader and you've got 15 people with vantage points into an enemy position and you're telling 13 of them, don't report in with what you see. We're going to make our attack plan based on this guy here in the bunker who thinks he knows what's going on. <laughs> right <laughs> what, right i mean does that well this that, is this, well it's, it, i think that you hit the nail on the head with silos right i mean silos create this complexity yeah. but but there's but it's also the it's it's the culture and the mindset we yeah no we, when you when you silo and subdivide what you have to do as a leader is then create processes for everybody Right. And you, the leader is responsible for the connection between the silos and the soda straws. And so now everybody no longer has a view to the customer. They have a view towards the process. Something comes squirting into my cubicle. I'm supposed to do this to it and put it out that hole in, on the other side of my cubicle, which goes into somebody else's. And I am no longer a for-profit company. I am a for-process company. I think it's also interesting, though, on this point, Mark, is that Companies are ran so fiscally tight that they work with all these different profit recovery companies to constantly drive down price, right? And so because price is as an exponential value exchange to profit. Yeah, and by, yeah. but by having that mindset of always driving price down, what they also are eliminating is the, the, that, what you said, is the focus on quality. And in many cases, they are doing that. They believe they're not, but they, they oftentimes are. There's only so much you can push on that. Yeah. So, you know, and so if, if you have that cultural mindset at the larger organization level, which are oftentimes PE ran, um, oftentimes VC ran, rarely are they private anymore at that like kind of 100 million mark and above. Those types of organizations are so focused on just the tactical transaction that they've lost sight of what real relationship development looks like. Yeah, I um, early on I helped, I, I sold electrical components. And so I would talk to design teams who are designing a box that might go in an airliner or designing a supercomputer. 
and they those design teams were very aware of optimizing their system at the component level or optimizing at the system level. Mm. If we optimize each component, the system might still stink. Right, right. Right? But so they, because it, you're but, looking but, at but the whole the system. Men, mentally, as a corporate leaders, we're doing the same thing. We're breaking the system down in our mind, and then we tell every department leader to optimize within your department. And so your company has been optimized at the component level, not at the system level. And we create this dumb thing I call the internal customer. And that's only a Band-Aid because you lost sight to the real customer. You right. took the view of the real customer away from somebody and you want to make them feel not quite so useless. So you gave them an internal customer as a Band-Aid. I want to give two stories here real quick. And one story, one story is about a large financial services firm that was a client of ours. And we had direct access and insight into all the feedback of the market, 943 meetings set for them over a two year window with large, you know, C-suite executives, I won't name the title, so I don't give away who these companies are, but, um, and this company was super tactically focused, hyper, hyper siloed, marketing didn't talk to sales almost ever. It was really a weird, weird dynamic then both of them never talked to innovation or product offering that was completely siloed as well. And we're like, Hey guys, uh, you're gonna like, you have a big competitor in the market and they're doing this like concierge thing and you could easily add this, right? They have six, they had 8,000 clients at the time in the, in the, in, in the world. And, uh, I said, Hey, if you guys, all you have to do is hire a student, fly them out there with an iPad and do this and that, and you'll save a lot of money and probably increase your profits by 30%. You know, 30 of your client, 30% of your clients will buy this new solution for three times as much money. You should offer it. Go for it, guys. Like it's telling us this. The market's telling us right now. Like, got to do it fast because they're they're already doing it, right? And they're like, no, 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 we're good, we're good. We don't want to do that. So jump forward 12 months. They've lost 2,000 customers. Out of uh, how many? 8,000. A quarter <laughs> of their customers are gone right? They've not expanded. They've shrunk their marketing budgets in half. They've shrunk their sales team in half. They're like treading water. Now, this company's brand is a thousand times more impressive than the company that's taking all their customers, but they're not listening to their customer. Took them 18 months to finally offer something of similar comparison, just 18 months, and they lost over a quarter of their customers. So understanding the relationship between product offering and go to market strategy, right? And, uh, and the value you're bringing to the market, right? Yeah. has to be intertwined with marketing messaging and sales feedback. If these three don't interact and stay as one organization, not three silos, then every company at some point is doomed to fail. Yeah. That's, that's my uh, I mean, I feel like you've seen my little three circle Venn diagram and oh. that's, that's my practice. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. And if and they have to do that, Mark, I mean, you know it because it's, it's what you teach. So I, mean, I think we teach in similar structures that way. Yeah. And I think that understanding that is such an imperative um, action item for companies. Right. And to do that well is hard and they have to build those structures and systems and invest into that to be able to print it. And so I want to share one more story, which is these mid market companies 
that are, whether they're PE owned or not, they're just on this fast growth accelerator. They want to get from 50 million to 250 million, or they want to get from 100 to a billion, whatever their growth plan is. It's always to get to the billion, right? They're like on their path to that. And the belief is, I think what you highlighted earlier is like one of, so one, one of our, one of our prospective uh, clients was saying to me, he said, look, I need a hundred meetings a month. And then we asked him, I said, well, what's your largest client? Well, they pay us, this is a hundred and twenty million in business and their largest client pays them 40 million a year. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. And I was like, <laughs> right. And so you've got only two problems, one product and one customer. <laughs> right. So it's like a, almost a half of your business is, uh, well, a third of your business is one customer. I said, um, so you need a hundred meetings a month. Why? He's like, cause then I'll hit my 250 million mark in the next three years. I was like, okay, what's your close rate? And he gives us this number. We go through this whole math equation, right? And I say, what's your average client? They're at this price point. There's, it's like half a million. And um, I said, but your largest client's 40. How many of those are out in the market that you could do? These are probably about 20 total. I was like, so there's 20 people in your universe that could pay you $40 million and we only have one? He's like, yeah. I was like, and I said, you guys have a really great value prop. I was like, honestly, I wouldn't be focusing on these hundred of meetings a month. I'd go try to, I'd spend every dollar I had to go land three or four more of those 40 million ones and just keep the, the pipeline running for the smaller ones. And I was like, I don't think you need a hundred. I think you need 20 really great ones, high quality, right? Cause your average deal was between half a million to a million and a half anyway. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was like, and how many people are taking the calls? Oh, I'm taking all of them. I was like, I was like, wait a minute. I was like, wait, CEO of this $120 million company, you're taking all the sales calls? He's like, yeah, I take them all. I was like, so you think you can take 100 a month? He's like, oh, yeah, easily. I was like, yeah. I was like, have you ever? No, I've never had more than like 10 a month. I was like, okay. And I was like, so then instead of hiring strategically, right, where I was like, okay, we'll guarantee this thing you want, but I'm going to give you what you, you need, is what I told him. I was like, um, they went for the tactical sale, right? So what I want everybody to understand is, is that in, in, in the space of meeting setting, you can hire tactically, which is a performance base. I'll pay a thousand bucks a meeting or 2,500 bucks a meeting or 500 bucks a meeting. But depending on your space, there's variances. And there's a lot of companies out there that do that. But you know who the companies are that do that? They're call centers. Call centers that are now saying they do everything that us advanced strategists and marketing do on the email side. I was like, what most people don't understand, Mark, is that Getting into the inbox of Elon Musk is a really hard act, right? It's not an easy thing to get through to. Like you have to understand that data, delivery, and copy all play this similar and exact science to getting into the inbox of an executive team, right, or an organization. And so by like, let's say some organizations will say, here, here, use this tool, sales loft or outreach or whatever for my sales force, right? And let's go let all of our sales guys go pound sand, which is the whole old school model of hire a bunch of BDRs, go pound sand, let them qualify the market, wreck all of your relationships in the market, hurt your brand not unknowingly, right? Hurt your deliverability as an organization. Do all these things. By the way, nobody ever talks about this. They don't talk about this. They just say, go do it. Like here, I'm going to give you all the tools, all the data. Here's your Zoom info. Here's this. They're spending $3 million a year on their sales enablement in technology, data, infrastructure, and BDR team, right? To go pound sand so that these sales guys can sit here and wait for a few leads to start coming in while they work their network. 
This is the standard model. Just while, so you know. the, yeah, while those BDRs are poisoning the well. Absolutely. And they're hurting the relationship, especially if you're selling at the executive suite level, because those BDRs are never going to get there consistently. They'll just get directors and VPs and you got to walk up the ladder. Right. And so this model that the old book, uh, Predictable Revenue, talked about 10 years old now, guys, I mean, come on, we're still operating on this model. Right. Everybody's still operating on this. And if you're going to executives and you're selling a high ticket item and you're doing those sorts of activities, that is not the strategy that will work for your organization. Like that's just not. But it's what you still being told to do by private equity firms who I work with. Right. And they're saying this is what we have to do. We have to build this structure because it's worked in this. Well, guess what? That book was built for Salesforce which was selling to directors, selling a low ticket item, and it was a technology and an easy buying decision with easy budget. It wasn't selling to executive suites, but we're applying that strategy to executive engagement initiatives. We're the best in the world market executive engagement initiatives, bottom line. And then they want to go pay prices to get this real, like, tell me this. If I could get you on the, on the phone with the likes of a CFO of Whole Foods, the CTO of Best Buy, the CEO of Rolls Royce, and we can do these sorts of conversations and I can get you, and not even get you, guarantee you 120 to 250 of those a year. I was like, and each of those are worth a million, two million, three million, five million dollars a year to your organization. It's like, why would you only want to go spend a hundred thousand or seventy five thousand dollars to do it? Like, does it even matter? Like, this is just asinine the budgets that they align to go get these asinine goals and then they think okay well that's what I, all i can do because that's the only marketing budget i'm willing to afford for it it's like <laughs> it's, it's, it's like like it doesn't make business sense if if, if it's what we were talking about earlier like if if you want to go make 150 million bucks but you don't want to spend more than like fifty thousand dollars to make that a reality for your business really that's going to work guess what go build it in house and see how much that's going to cost you <laughs> like you're spending three, five million bucks to get there. I promise you that, right? So the the whole the whole world's concept right now on investing into strategy of growth isn't in alignment with the reality of what they really want. So my challenge to most of the executives that may or may not be listening to this is challenge yourself on what real looks like. You don't want meetings, you don't want data, you don't want leads, you don't want these tactical solutions you want the deals that will win and you want guarantees and certainty around that you're not going to get that by hiring an internal team now you can build it and it'll take two years and you can probably make it work you know like most companies it'll take two three years to figure out all those processes or you can hire a company like ours you can work with a company like marks to work through those strategies learn from all the previous companies that you've already worked with and leverage all of that experience into an immediate now solution. And so it's just a time versus money initiative. So sorry, I got on a little, uh, no. little uh, soapbox uh, there, but I, well, I but, like, but, but, but you're, but you're providing the skeleton for that calculation of your real value. Um, it's not about dollars per appointment. It's about dollars per sale, dollars per relationship. And if you're only calculating dollars per lead, you're making a whole bunch of assumptions and right. you're, you've optimized at the component level. You're optimizing for, your, for the process that you have, not for the customer you want. And you're also incentivizing. I, like I just fell in love with something I said about my Yeah, life. That was a fantastic insight. <laughs> you're, also, you're also incentivizing the organization to give you the thing you don't want. 
This is what people don't understand. So the reason that so many people hate call centers is because they get these leads and then nobody knows why the hell they're on the phone. They forget because it's a normal thing for executives to forget what they say yes to. It's a very common behavior. So we built in all these best practices that, that, that has your show rate at like 95%. They understand why they're there. They remember why they're there and they show up. They don't dog you every time. Like it's really like there's a lot of systems that have been tested over 10 years that we've been able to perfect. Why go figure it out? Anyway, so that, that aside, I wanted to talk about one, one more thing here, which is um, uh, an, uh, a head of a private equity firm once said to um, myself and one of my clients, uh, he said, look, you can't invest in a marketing strategy and then only give it a one-year window to measure the return. He's like, especially if you're going to executives. And I said, well, that's interesting because I agree with you, but why don't you share with my client what that might be? Is because everybody is always looking for the one-year return. I was like, but if you think of an entire marketplace, right? 3% of the market's ready to buy today. 7% would start looking today. 30% of the market is going to be um, qualified to hire you. And if you educated them right, might start looking earlier than they would have otherwise. And the rest of the market is never going to buy from you. All right. But that's short, mid and long term clients right there. And those clients shift every single month. Who's in which bucket? Right. So yeah. you have to you have to stay top of mind in front of that market at all times. Some of the people that wouldn't become a maybe and then a buyer. Right. And so if you don't build a three year pipeline, you don't really know the value proposition of a true marketing initiative with an executive marketplace. Right now, every single month I sign between a, a, a mid to high six figure client almost every single month that we've been nurturing for over 18 months as a relationship from our own pipeline, from exactly what I talk about, right? Because they weren't ready, but we stay in touch. We keep the relationship going. We check in on them, see how things are going. We don't forget what we talked about and it's consistent, right? More times than not, I get, Hey, like I just had this guy that's, that's signing right now with us. And he said, it's like, Hey, that presentation and the business case and that impact analysis you built with me uh, 18 months ago, right? was fantastic. I've been thinking about it ever since. Thanks for staying in touch with me every month and just checking in. Um, I'm ready. Let's go ahead and get started now. Right. 18 months. So it's a long term became a short term almost overnight. And I did nothing but just check in. Right. So like the point is, is that that investment into that activity 18 months ago, it's ROI now is realized. I can't realize that ROI in this this year's marketing budget. Yeah, Nate, I'm I'm going to respective respectfully disagree that that with you that that's all it took. Okay. That 18 months during that 18 months, you are building credibility. Trust. And it, it's not just checking in. It's the, the way you checked in built credibility. The yeah. fact that you stayed in the market built credibility. And I. I, I don't want to let you get away with saying, yeah, I was just, you know, poof, a miracle occurred. All I had to do is touch base. No, the, the way you touch base. That's true. Um, and when you're selling to executives like that, it's all about credibility. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm at least smart enough to know that all these appointment setters mean nothing to me because I'm trying to get with a C-suite executive who may not even be on LinkedIn, as you said, but certainly isn't going to listen to some BDR and... God help me if I hire one of those to say somebody say something one of those people to say something on my behalf to a C-suite executive 
I'm, I'm afraid of what they would say. I'm afraid to pay them money. I, I'm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let them pay me to say something on behalf, much less pay them. There's a better way to Mark. There's a there's an executive engagement methodology that you know we've perfected over the years that is way more advanced. It's an executive to executive strategy that is powerful, yeah. unique, engaging. Let's, think, oh yeah, let's talk about it on the next because we are. This is look by out. far the longest podcast in the series, but it is a perfect kickoff. Yeah. To uh, season three, where we're talking to executives about value, about focus, and about understanding. Nate, uh, thanks. How can people get a hold of you and Link Strategies? Uh, you can just email me, nate at linkstrategies.com. You can ping me on LinkedIn, Nathan Keeveman. Just look me up. Um, happy to connect with anybody or introduce you to somebody on our team. Uh, and thanks for a great hour. I mean, you and I, I think we get each other wound up and we could, we could <laughs> probably go a long time together. Uh, yeah. So thank you. And thanks for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that value is something that only exists in your customer's mind, which means your success in the world really only happens between your customer's ears. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.